All right. How's everybody doing today? Hope everybody's uh, having a good Sunday, had a good weekend. And uh, I don't want to be long today. Um, I want to jump into something <clears throat> that sort of picks up on where what we were talking about last week or what I was talking about last week about, you know, just um, postulating the question, do we live inside of a simulation or do we live inside of base reality? And we've talked a lot about, uh, you know, very various different times about Dr. Hoffman's uh, case against reality that at a basic level of sensory perception, what we see, what we hear, what we feel, uh, what we taste, what we touch, and how that relates to consciousness, that we probably, even at that base level of sensory presentation, that is created inside our brains. And that probably is a simulation. It's probably not like what reality actually is. And he goes so far as to say that what we are relating to that we call matter are actually conscious units that we perceive as um, physical material stuff. And, and we interface based on sort of icons on a computer where the perception, the thing that we're working with on the computer isn't the thing itself. It's just how it appears. So, for example, if I type an email and I drag that email or I, I type a docu- document and I drag that document into the trash can, I'm not taking a real document and moving it into a real trash can. I'm dealing with icons, right? I'm moving it to the trash icon. And so it looks like a trash can and it works like a trash can, but in reality, there's circuitry and uh, programming and all this stuff that I can't see that makes it work. So I'm not, when I'm working with a computer and interfacing with a computer, I'm not working with the reality of what's there. The, uh, you know, uh, whatever goes into a computer, I don't know. Uh, in terms of the computer language itself, I'm not seeing the language, the programming language itself, and I'm definitely not seeing the circuitry and stuff that's inside the computer. What I'm seeing is what's being presented to me so that I can interface with it and work with it. So what Dr. Hoffman is postulating based on his theories is that we don't deal with reality in a in a concrete corresponding way. We deal with reality in a way that is most practical for us that that our our brains produce these images for us based on the practicality of interaction and survival not based on the concrete reality or a correspondence to truth or what's actually there just like i was using the example of the icons on my computer and uh and then we talked about how elon musk has has made popular the idea and the concept, and many people have grabbed hold of this, that we're not living in base reality, but that we're living in some kind of uh, probably simulated reality. And uh, <clears throat> and so I want to I add another layer to this. I want to add another layer to this. And I want to present the possibility that our lives are not oriented towards a concrete correspondence with facts and with reality. And I want to talk about the stories and the narratives that we tell ourselves. So um, let, let's, let's use terminology that we used last week. Let's just suppose for a second, because we've always believed that 
this. Let's let go of the idea of a simulated um, reality that none of this that we're experiencing is base reality. But let's suppose that base reality, just for the sake of, of explaining this, let's suppose that base reality is your sensory representations, that what you see, what you hear, what you feel, what you touch, what you smell, what you taste is real, base reality, right? And so the first level of consciousness, the first thing that our brain does is it takes all this information and data and then it represents internally pictures, sounds, smells, tastes, touch, all of that's going on inside your brain. That's the first level of reality. Now, I suppose that a lot of animals and stuff, that's all that they exist in. And this is what's so interesting about some of the spiritual paths. And this is why I'm cautious. Um, Instead of admonishing people what to do, I'm just going to tell you, I'm cautious about a lot of what's being taught right now in spirituality from various different teachers, even really, really good friends of mine, because, and, and a lot of it I've talked about the ego, but let's think about this for a minute. Is it possible that some of what we're being taught in spirituality, it sounds so good, it sounds like higher densities and higher levels, and and it helps us make sense of our lives, but is it possible that some of that stuff is actually causing us to devolve rather than to evolve? And here's what I mean by that. That for, I suppose, certain species of animals, there is only sensory representations and we might call that being in the now we might call that being in the moment so in other words animals live in the moment now i have nothing against animals (laughs) i'm just taking this from an evolutionary trajectory the perspective of evolutionary trajectory so if we started out as plants consciousness started out as plants we assume probably that plants don't have the same kind, certainly they wouldn't have the same kind of sensory representations that we have, whatever kind of conscious units they are, at least the way that we look at them and understand them. And then consciousness evolved into animals and we can look at animals and say, well, yeah, definitely they're responding to what they see, feel, hear, smell, all that stuff. And then depending on the species, it appears to have some level of self-reflection, right? Uh, the ability to, to self-reflect, um, to have some sense of an eye. And that's where the ego comes in. The ego comes in when we begin to self-reflect. So a lot of these teachings that are encouraging us to peel away the layers of the ego are actually what they're doing is they're inviting us to strip our lives of the meaning that we give to our lives. And I'll explain that in a minute. And then just be in the moment, perhaps like, an animal is in the moment where, what, I mean, what does that mean to be in the moment? To, if I could, if I could strip away all the concepts of who I think I am and just be in the moment and just exist in that moment, then what I'm, what I'm being required to do is to remove that second level of evolutionary consciousness, which allows for self-reflection, uh, and return to this sort of base state of just being in the moment, or what they mean by that really is just being in sensory, uh, internal sensory representations. 
just, uh, and, and there's times for that, right? There's times to just let go and, and just enjoy a sunset and just be caught up in that. Not be thinking about the sunset. Enjoy a good meal and not just be thinking about the meal, but just enjoy the, the sensuality of it, right? And, uh, I think in the Western world, sensuality, particularly in the Christian world, sensuality has gotten a bad, has gotten a bad rap, right? And, uh, so I think there is some benefit in learning how to be sensual, how to be in the moment and <clears throat> excite and enliven all your various sensory, internal sensory representations, all that stuff, right? That's base reality. The second level of reality is the meaning that we begin to give. And this is where I think, I think part of the divinity that we have, part of the higher consciousness that we have, is the ability to make meaning, the ability to give meaning out of our circumstances and out of our experiences. So, <clears throat> uh, we, what we do is, is we have an experience. So yesterday, um, I went with my family and we went to, uh, a wine festival that they have down here this time of year, every year where they introduce the, the local Winery introduces the new labels and flavors that they have from this year's harvest. And so there's all this sensory input and sensory experience. There's music, there's food, there's good wine. Um, you know, you're with family and friends. And so at that level, there's just sensory input, right? There's just the experience. There's just the circumstance, but on some level, while I'm having that experience, I'm giving meaning to it. Um, for example, trying the various different wines. I happen to like dry reds better than sweet wines. Some sweet wines even make me nauseous, right? So I have the experience, and then I give meaning to it in the sense that I say, I give preference to the red wines over the white wines or the dry wines over the sweet wines. Um, it was such a great family experience. It's something that I want to remember with my family just by labeling it as a great experience, as a great family experience. I'm giving meaning to what's going on, right? Um, um, and then what happens is I can even give meaning to my meaning. Well, we go every year this weekend um, on this particular Saturday, the last Saturday in September, we always go to the Abbey uh, Winery and the Wine Festival. And so now it's a family tradition. See, that's another level of meaning that we're giving. And let's just suppose that my children really enjoy this. Now, I don't know that they do because uh, as they get older, they get more bored with it. But let's just suppose that the children, this is a great memory for them, and they grow up with this, and now this becomes incorporated into their story. Uh, yeah, my, I remember going with my mom and dad to the, the wine festivals and they would try the wine and, and if dad had a little too much, we could get him to buy all the stuff we wanted him to buy. <laughs> He's always saying no at the beginning, but by the end of the night, you know, it's like we could get whatever we wanted because he got real generous or whatever. And so that becomes part of their story. And, and so what I'm trying to say is that, that we go through circumstances in life. I'm, I'm just trying to use a simple example. 
but we could use other bigger examples. We go through our lives giving meaning to our lives. And then out of that meaning, we generate narratives. We create stories. Uh, we, we, and out of that, then we create an identity. Because to have an identity, you to have a, you, you have to have a story that surrounds that identity. You have to be a character in your own movie, if you will, a character in your own story. So that we're not experiencing life to a really large degree. We are not experiencing life. We certainly are not understanding who we are by sensory perceptions alone. We are understanding who we are. We are self-reflecting and understanding who we are based on our ability to give meaning and then also based on the stories that we tell ourselves. What's the narrative that you tell people about yourself? So my story, uh, you know, I can share my story that uh, went through some really traumatic stuff at 16. Now watch what I'm doing. I'm giving meaning to my experiences. I went through traumatic stuff. Now I went through circumstances that were unpleasant, but in my mind they were traumatic and I built them up as traumatic, right? So I went through some really traumatic stuff when I was 16, changed the course of my life. Uh, I began to search for meaning in my life, went to college, met a bunch of Christian friends, went to a Petra Josh McDowell concert, gave my life to the Lord Jesus Christ, asked him to come into my life. And then I heard the call of God, went to Bible school, prepared for ministry, got married, um, struggled to have children, struggled as a couple with infertility, started a church, uh, grew that church, did all kinds of missions work, ran, you know, various different successful and unsuccessful ministries at one point one a number of Best of Pueblo Awards in the community was honored in that way, and then had this profound spiritual experience that caused me to shift my view of reality and see that what I had believed and what I bought into not only um, was not helpful for me, but was actually traumatizing me and keeping me insecure. And that it was mission impossible to try to be, you know, the perfect Christian husband and perfect Christian pastor and perfect Christian. And, and, you know, and then there were parts of myself that I shaved off. And so I started doing shadow work and then, and then, you know, people were excited at first and then people not so excited. And then a combination of the two. And then even four years later from some people that left four years ago or whatever, um, cause stirring the pot. Uh, we get hate mail this week in the mail from past and, and you see how I'm building a story. So who am I? Who am I in the midst of that? Well, I'm a former pastor. I'm a husband. I'm, it, you see what I'm saying? That's my story. And so then that could be my identity that I make. And then depending on what uh, the next level of meaning, let's say the next level of meaning, I can look at that story and I can say, man, was such a, I've been such a victim my whole life. I was victimized, had some really unfair things happen to me that messed me up at 16. And then I wasn't able to go to college like I wanted to go. And I wasn't able to live the life that I wanted to live. And so I settled down here in Pueblo and then we weren't able to have children like everybody else was able to have children and all our friends were going and, and they were having kids and, and, and because we were in a Christian environment, they wanted to know why we wouldn't have kids. And then we were told that we were cursed because we were barren. And, uh, 
and then, you know, I, I invest my life into something that just turns out to be a lie. And, and, uh, and then I have to start over at 50. See, I, I just keep jumping up and giving levels of meaning by telling the story of my life, right? Or I could tell the story differently. I could say, I could say, uh, you know, went through some really difficult things when I was 16, 17, 18 years old. It really built my character and taught me how to handle adverse situations in life where a lot of other people wouldn't have made it through that. I made it through that. Not only did I make it through it, but it, it caused me to awaken to this calling to begin to search for deeper meaning in life. And for a season, I found meaning in life through the Christian texts and following the Christian gospel and doing the best I can. And I was very successful and starting with nothing, but a small group of people. And together we built this great ministry that, that touched the world and impacted the world and improved people's lives. And we touched thousands of people's lives and we brought healing and we brought miracles. And then uh, when, when we thought we had just accomplished everything there was to accomplish, uh, boom, reality shifts, and now there's a new adventure that we go into, and it's so much fun, and it's been so enriching. And because we were uh, infertile, we had the opportunity to adopt these wonderful boys that, that are just so not like us, right? Like, like it's just, uh, they're so different. It's brought so much diversity and so much healing and so much, you get it? So... Same set of circumstances, different stories, different ways of telling the stories, one that feels more empowering, one that feels more victim. And then I find myself um, relating in those stories. But here's here's the important thing to realize. None of that is actually real. I mean, very few of us, when we're telling stuff, do we just stick to the facts, ma'am? Right. Just give me the facts. Don't give me your opinion. Don't add whether it was good or bad. Don't give me your preferences. Don't give me your judgments about it. Don't give me your ideas and your thoughts or or, or your narrative about it. Don't give meaning to it. Just tell me exactly what happened without giving any meaning to it. We went to the wine festival yesterday. We tried various different types of wine. Uh, we ate. Um Polish sausage, Pueblo chili, with food with Pueblo chilies in it, and we came home, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the facts. If I start saying we went and we enjoyed our time together and the weather was wonderful and we had uh, some great wine and some great food and we relaxed and it felt really good and it was an enjoyable time and it's tradition we do every year, all of that's meaning that I'm giving to it. None of that's actually real. All of that is me giving meaning to the experiences that I have. And what I'm contemplating and thinking about is that that ability to be a meaning maker, that ability to give meaning to our circumstances, that's what makes us a higher, um, more expanded, more evolved being now. And, and, and a lot of spiritual teaching right now is saying unravel that, you know, give up that power to make meaning because when you're making meaning, you're identifying with the mind. When you're making meaning, you're identifying with an I that you, that you created in your mind. Well, okay, we can agree on that. To a large degree, this I has been created, but I don't think we're supposed to 
that the next level means that we strip ourselves of that advanced capacity, of that evolved capacity, and return to a less evolved state where we're just experiencing the moment, where we don't have that capacity to speak and experience and define and give meaning to our experience. I think, though, what we need to realize is that while it's not real, we are the meaning makers. We are the creators in that sense of our experience. We nuance our experience by the way we think about our experience and the meaning that we choose to give. Now, this brings me back to truth, right? So a lot, a vast majority of what we live in does not necessarily have any correspondence to concrete reality or concrete truth. But that does not make it any less important. And so much of what we argue about, so much like what's going on in politics and stuff, and what I'm starting to realize is that, that there are groups of people, powerful groups of people that are controlling the narratives and then are captivating the masses through these like pendulums of energy that move us, right? So uh, the, the, the real power brokers in our world are those that sit in the places of influence that have the power to form national narratives, corporate narratives, and then enough people buy into that narrative, and it's like a pendulum of energy swings through that that people, and they're living that narrative, right? They're living that narrative. Like one of the posts that I put, and, uh, you know, I, I got to quit doing this on Facebook because people project their stuff onto your posts. Um, and a lot of people think that if they only know you on social media, they think that your social media presence is <laughs> the fullness of who you are, right? Like, like, um, like that's how they identify you. That's how they label you. That's how they give meaning to how they understand how they relate with you. And I found that I can say stuff to people, uh, that don't agree with me if we're talking face to face or on the phone and they, they catch my spirit, they catch that I'm not angry. Um, I'm not like, there's not this emotional charge where I'm whatever coming from a low vibration or whatever. I just think differently than some of my friends do. And so I'm not caught up in the same vortex or the same pendulum of spiritual energy that a lot of my friends are that are following like a course of miracles and uh, the law of one and some of that stuff. I, I just, I just give different meaning to that stuff. I just see it differently. I don't see it as, um, and I'm not an expert on all of that. I'm just saying the stuff that I see. So let me, let me, let me walk that back a little bit. What I see posts of people saying some people, who have been informed by people who teach the law of one and people who teach A Course in Miracles and that kind of stuff, does not, to me, in any way, seem to be moving the needle forward in any beneficial way to humanity, but pockets of people are caught up in that pendulum, right? 
and I'm just not swinging with it. <laughs> and so one of the things that I put in my in my thing was it's amazing to me that for a lot of these same people, not taking the vaccine for COVID has become a moral issue, an issue of who's awakened, who's really awake, who's really spiritually conscious, and who isn't, who um, is a sheeple, and who isn't. If we're standing, who's standing against tyranny, and who isn't. So I want you to just think about the different narratives there, right? So for those of us like myself who see this vaccine as a achievement, a human achievement, right? Uh, just like any invention or any breakthrough in medicine or whatever, like see it as a human achievement, not perfect. Uh, certainly there are legitimate questions surrounding it. Um, I don't believe in the mandates at all for other reasons that I won't get into, but I see it as a good thing, right? That's the narrative that I'm running with. And, and yet there's this other group that their narrative, their corporate narrative is, oh, the government's making us do it and we don't know what's in it and we don't know the long-term effects of it. And all of that, a lot of that born of genuine, uh, and legitimate concerns and stuff. Just a different narrative, right? And so then people manipulating these narratives like pendulums that are swinging through. Um, and, and so the stories, here's my point. Um, the story you're telling yourself about the vaccine, the story you're telling yourself over here about how it might relate to consciousness and morality, like how much of that corresponds to Real experience and reality, a lot of it doesn't, right? Um, necessarily, at least we can't prove it. Almost all our spiritual stuff, we can't necessarily prove that someone's narrative is right and someone else's narrative is wrong. So these are the stories that we live by. And how they move us, the direction they move us, right? And so, Perhaps part of our divinity, part of awakening the divine nature within us is to understand that we have this power to create our experience, the, the, the matrix in which we live through the meanings that we are giving and the meanings that we are choosing, if that makes sense. Now, let's bring this back to the Bible. Because <laughs> so I almost got into something last week and I, I just didn't want to touch it because... I just didn't want to add too much information to what I was talking about last week. And I'm not really going to get into it today either, perhaps in the future. But I want to talk about, I said, one of the things I said when I was deconstructing was that a lot of the Bible stories, particularly in the Torah at the time, I was thinking mostly of the Torah, were myth. And boy, did that cause a stir. And boy, did that cause people to get upset. Because when I say myth, a lot of people hear fairy tale. Watch how meaning works. Watch how slippery meaning is. When I say myth, for a lot of people, their minds go back and they reference fairy tales. They reference um, something maybe like even Donald Duck or Mickey Mouse or... <laughs> In other words, what I mean is something that is completely 
entertainment, right? And definitely, definitely myth means something that didn't actually literally historically happen. Now watch. Now watch what we do in the meaning making in religion. We assume the historical event to be true and the myth to be a lie. We assume believing the literal, historical, actual events is where the power is. And myth leads us off into unreality, fantasy. One guides us towards truth and freedom. The other guides us away and into bondage. Now, that's a presupposition. If it historically happened, it can be inspired by God. If it's just a myth, it can't have any inspiration to it because God wouldn't inspire a myth because that would be a lie. Those are all presuppositions of the meaning makers of religion that tell you the Bible has to be literal in order to be powerful. And yet Joseph Campbell, who is considered a real innovator of the concept of myth, he defines the term myth as a story that is symbolic that gives your life meaning, and I love this, speaks to or points to your spiritual potentials. So if we look at a myth as a story, just as a story, and we look at his story as a story, his story, right? History is a story of what the events, the, the, uh, chain of events that happened, the sequencing of events that occurred that got us to where we are. That's history. Myth is also a story. But what happens if history, just the record of a sequencing of events, if that story, which one's more powerful? Which story is more powerful in our lives And which one is going to help us get to where we're going or who we're becoming? So let me do a little bit more with this. So my story that I just told you when I was 16, 17 years old, went through a traumatic experience. I'm not going to do it again, but I start telling you my story. I have to do that from memory. I have to do that from memory. Now, here's what. Neuroscience is telling us lots of studies about this. You can look up about memory is that memory is extremely unreliable because while we're having this experience, we are filtering our experience through our values, our beliefs, our stories, and that is adding texture to our experiences, right? And then we store it in our memory. But here's the interesting thing. There are a lot of studies that suggest that when you retrieve a memory, more often than not, you slightly alter that memory. And then when the brain, when it returns to the place in the brain where the memory is stored, it's stored not as it actually happened. It's stored as you remembered it. Now, that's that's just a fact. Like, it's... 
yesterday is not stored as it actually happened. It's stored as I remember it. There's lots of things about details of the conversations that we had, various different people that we saw, the booths that we visited that weren't important enough for me to remember. So I don't remember it as it happened. I remember it as I remember it. But then neuroscientists tell us that each time we tell the story, we alter it just a little bit. And then we store it in the memory with the alteration. So if I tell the story, if I tell a story over and over and over and over again, I'm slightly altering it each time. I'm remembering it according to the alterations. Then at the end of the day, gang, our brain is playing one internal massive game of telephone with us. Because the story grows taller down the line, right? It, it gets altered and changed each time it's told. And then we remember it that way. So in reality, we're not living inside when we're telling a story. Our story does not correspond one-to-one with concrete reality, with the actual circumstances, with the actual history of what happened. So what if ancient people, and certainly the people who wrote the Bible, understood something about the power of story and the power of myth. And they placed a premium on because stories help us understand who we are. They placed a premium on myth or story that would empower the individual or the community, especially in this case, the community of Israel when we're looking at the Bible. And what if their present empowerment and where they were going, where the story was pulling them and how the story was helping them to understand themselves and to find themselves and sustain themselves was more important than what actually happened in this chain of events that we call history. Now, I got to give a shout out to my my brother and my friend, Daryl Carlson, because he said we were talking yesterday and he said some stuff to me that just absolutely caused all this to fall into place for me. So big shout out to you, Daryl, if you're watching. And then he elaborated on it some, and I thought, man, so a lot of this, you know, comes from uh, thoughts that I've been having, but stuff that Daryl just, you know, really helped me grasp and get a hold of. So I want to give him credit and give him a shout out for it. But what if the real power is in the myth, not the history? Now, Psalm 78 says this. Psalm 78 says, give ear, O People to my law. Now, the word law is a mistranslation. The Hebrew, it's Torah. And Torah is better translated as the teaching. Give ear, O people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. Now, a parable is a story, a symbolic story that is symbolic. It, it, it's, it, it's a story that's made up to teach a spiritual or moral principle. And the spiritual or the moral lesson is what's important, not the historical correspondences. So he's saying that the Torah is a parable. And he says, I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, telling them to the generation to come. The praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works he has done. Why? Because these stories, these myths, 
gave them a sense of continuity as a community. It gave them a sense of identity as a community. It gave them meaning and purpose, and it shaped not who they were in their history. It shaped who they were in their present moment, and it shaped who they were becoming. And so what I'm suggesting to you is that there's more power for us, and there's value in myth that can empower us. And this is where I, I got this from Daryl, and i got to give this to him. Like, does it really matter if what we believe corresponds exactly with what we think is reality in the world out there, which may be a simulated reality to begin with? Or does it matter, is this myth that I'm living by, is this story that I'm living by, is it empowering me to become who I want to become, or is it binding me, and is it holding me back? Now, these these spiritual paths that tell you to just let go of all of that, that there is no I, that that you just have to, you are not your mind, you have to quit identifying with the past, this is somehow evolutionarily it, somehow in the in the trajectory of evolution, this is on a lower frame. What I'm saying is the exact opposite. No, this this power to tell stories, this power to to give meaning is a step in the next evolutionary process. And if we just unpack all that and step back from all that and just realize, wow, I'm just one with everything in, in the moment, then then we really are going back to some level in animal consciousness. Now, is it helpful? Sure, because if you're telling yourself a disempowering story, a story that has you as the victim of something, a story that that is keeping you in limitation, a story that is causing you suffering, then absolutely letting go of that story is key to healing. But that does not mean that you give up your power to make a new story. That does not mean that you just have to become one with everything and lose your sense of identity and your purpose and your meaning in life. I, I, for me, it just doesn't work, man. For me, it seems like a dangerous, dangerous spiritual teaching on a community level. That's just that's just my perception of it. Just, that's why I'm not eating it. I'm not taking it in, and I prefer what I've been talking about with the left hand path. And I and and. And so what I'm saying is, what if we could let go of those meanings that are bringing suffering into our lives, but not let go of the power to make meaning, which these guys don't do anyway, because they still have a story. They still have a sense of self. It's just different, right? So let's articulate it. Let's nuance it a little bit better. So, yeah, you're not your mind. You're not your pain body. You're not your suffering. You're not the story that of of. Uh, you know, the victim, you don't have to be the victim in your story that you are or have been telling yourself. But let's learn to tell a new story. Let's learn to tell a different story. Let's find some myth that we live by. Some people are living by the myth of being the victim. Some people are living by the myth of being the hero. They're both myths. The question is, which one is empowering you to get to where you want? For some people, the myth of the victim is very empowering. It's very empowering, especially in this culture. You know, if if you're the victim, people feel sorry for you. If you can make a villain out there, you can make people go after them. And that's what we do, right? That's what we do. I mean, we, we've just been caught up in all of this. And I have, too, to a certain degree that, you know, we're just we're just making villains and victims all over the place. And um, and so those become the myths that move masses of people. In a, in a certain direction and, and divide us, right? Because I'm the victim, you're the villain, um, 
you can't be the victim without being a villain. And so those stories can be very, those myths can be very empowering. But is it a myth that you want to choose to live by? Do you want to live the myth of the, the hero? You know, the hero, the victim is overcome by adversity. In the myth of the victim, the victim is overcome by the adversity. Adversity. The victim is overpowered by something stronger. The victim is unable to overcome. In the hero, the myth of the hero's journey, the hero also faces adversity, but it's part of the process. And the the, the hero grows and develops, and his potential or her potential is brought out in the adversity. And the hero conquers and overcomes the adversity. Same experience, two different myths that you're living by. So in this sense, then, it doesn't really matter if our myths that we live by, our stories that we're living by, correspond directly with concrete reality. In fact, if it does, we've lost the power, the spiritual power. We've lost the power of the story to unlock and speak to our spiritual potential. And so the myth is actually more spiritually empowering. So let's talk about the myth of Christianity. And this uh, shout out to Daryl again, Daryl Carlson, for this. The myth of Christianity, when I say the myth of it, I'm not necessarily saying that Jesus didn't live and the Gospels are not an accurate account and, you know, the crucifixion didn't happen. I'm not saying that. None of that happened historically. But what I am saying is it doesn't matter whether it happened historically or didn't happen historically. What I'm saying is, is what if, what if even the people writing it, it wasn't important to them the circumstances surrounding Jesus and his life, but what was more important to them was the figure of Jesus and what he represented in terms of our own spiritual evolution and potential. What if Christ is in us, in all of us, this divine spark? We are, we are sparks of the divine. We are aspects of the divine. And the Christian story is a myth designed to speak to our spiritual potentials and empower us to become something greater than what we were before, to, to, to transform us. See, myth has transforming power in it. History just tells you the sequences, the chain reaction of events, the sequencing of events that occurred. But it's neither empowering nor disempowering. So if we can embrace Christianity as a myth, again, not meaning necessarily that it did or didn't happen. A myth doesn't have to be based on total fantasy. A myth can be grounded in some reality. In fact, most myths usually are, or it can not be be just a story, but it's speaking to you. It's unlocking the potential in you. It's causing you to grow and reach a greater level of spiritual reality and potential. Um. And it's not binding you, right? And so this myth of the Christ figure, this myth for me, it's become a myth about the left-hand path. Um, and I apologize to those of you that don't know what I'm talking about here, but Jesus, the left-hand path just means uh, the awakened path, the, the path that is able to release, empower and release the authentic self despite social 
political and religious pressure. It's to be able to differentiate the authentic self from the self-crafted through the narratives of society, family, religion, and politics to wake up to who you really are to, as Joseph Campbell would say, follow your bliss and release your bliss and release your potential. And so for me, Jesus is the prime example of that. So when I look at Jesus as a Lucifer, I look at Jesus as a light bringer, as one who shakes off the chains of religious and political oppression, then the crucifixion to me can represent not God having to punish his son in my place, but the crucifixion can represent for me the pain and suffering and death to the socially, politically, and religiously constructed self. Because at the end of the day, it was Rome, political power, and the Pharisees' religious power that put Jesus to death. But he raised from the dead. He went into a cocoon. He went into a tomb that became a womb. And he raised from the dead. And so it can represent this process of enlightenment and awakening where I'm willing to be falsely accused, misunderstood, lose popularity, all this stuff to find my authentic self and release my authentic self, release my bliss, right? And find my light to receive Jesus Christ as the Lucifer, as the light bringer to me to help me discover my authentic self and that there is a death to the old socially constructed self and the socially constructed narratives and I put those to death, not not my nature. See, a lot of people think and still teach that we have this lower nature that somehow, I don't know, where where did it come from? Where did this lower nature come from, right? Uh, and by that, they mean your instinctive drives usually for sex. And then you have this instinctive drive also to destroy, which is evolutionary. So um, anyway. I don't want to get too sidetracked with all that stuff, <clears throat> but we think we have this lower nature. You know, some people say the right brain comes for the brain is better than the left comes for the brain. And we have to crucify this lower nature. We have to kill this lower nature. We have to die to self. We have to die to the lower nature. And, and, and so in these new spiritual systems that I've been talking about, all we did was change language. Now the ego has replaced the sin nature. Um, sense of separation has replaced, uh, the flesh and carnality. Um, higher, having higher vibrations has replaced, uh, not walk, walking in the spirit and not walking after the flesh. In other words, we, we judge and presuppose and assume if somebody's angry, they're at a lower vibration. If somebody's afraid, they're at a lower, uh, vibrational frequency and we need to tweak and raise those vibrations because we're judging and we're, we're just back to, uh, moralizing and controlling normal, natural human experiences, instead of judging them as higher or lower vibration, maybe we should ask the question, is this particular expression of myself authentic in this moment? And is it serving me in this moment to become my best and most authentic self? And if the answer to those two questions is yes, or is it serving a cause that I believe in? I, I believe that indignation is okay uh, when we believe in a cause that is going to move the needle and uplift and advance 
certain people groups. So Black Lives Matter, for example, I think it's important, regardless of what people say about its origins and its uh, communist, and they want to, you know, redefine the nuclear family. Listen, the nuclear family is Western American creation. The nuclear family doesn't even exist in the Bible itself. I need to do a teaching on what family structures was in the Bible. In Asian cultures, the nuclear family doesn't exist like it does here. So nobody's trying to take away your ability to have the family of your choice. They're just trying to expand and say maybe uh, two women who love each other can raise children. That's not your typical nuclear family. There are a lot of people of color who's, because of financial hardships and economic hardships and systemic oppression, uh, have quote-unquote broken homes. They don't have the norm of June and Ward Cleaver uh, and together. They, they, they're being raised by grandma and an uncle, and there's 10 of them living in one house, and that's their family. And so what they're trying to say is let's don't, let's don't put a value hierarchy. Let's, let's expand family, but that gets missed, man. That gets missed with people. And so, you know, anyway, what, what I'm saying is, is, um, I, I think it's, it's okay to be passionate about the stuff that's, that's moving the needle, but is it serving, right? Is it serving? And so sometimes it's back and forth and getting mad and, and, and vilifying each, side isn't serving anybody because we're not really communicating and connecting in a way that's 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 an exchange and flow of information a real dialogue um we're just having arguments um <clears throat> so instead of judging things as higher or lower so what i'm saying is with this way of looking at the crucifixion it's not about killing a part of me it's not about killing my sex drive or killing my uh not allowing myself to have emotions of anger or fear. Fear can be a really healthy emotion. You know, there are people, fear for a large degree is, is affected by the amygdala, which is just an almond shaped part of your brain. It sends out neuropeptides that tells you to go into a fight or flight mode. There have been people who have lost the amygdala <laughs> that don't have an amygdala. I may suppose maybe they were born without an amygdala that put themselves in dangerous situations all the time put themselves in unhealthy situations all the time because they don't have any sense. They don't have any reality simulation of fear that keeps them safe and keeps them protected. I, I want my kids to have a healthy sense of fear when they're getting in a car with somebody. I want them to have a healthy sense of fear around a rattlesnake. I want them to have a healthy sense of fear around a black widow or whatever. You, you see what I'm saying? So does it serve us in that moment or is it misplaced? That's, that's the real question. So, in the story of the crucifixion, you're dying not to a part of yourself. You're dying to, and this is where they get it right, that egoic part of yourself, the story that you're telling yourself, the self that you understand based on the narratives of the culture around you, based on the political narratives, and based on the religious narratives, you're giving up that self so that the true light that is within you, the true self, can be raised, the true self can be ascendant, and the true self can be revealed and shine like a light in a dark place. So <clears throat> I hope this was helpful for you. What I want you to get is, yeah, like that myth can be empowering, right? That myth can be empowering. And we lose the power of the gospel. We lose the power of the scriptures. When we devalue it as myth, saying because it's myth, ah, this is myth, 
I don't need it. I need nothing to do with it. We devalue the myth of it. Or we think the literal historical interpretation is what's important. The sequencing of events and your faith, your belief, your ability to get the history lesson is what's right. I can get the history lesson right all day long. I can believe, yeah, this is absolutely how it happened. Eyewitness accounts, even though I know they're not eyewitness accounts. Um, no contradictions, even though I know there is contradictions. Uh, and believe all that historical stuff. And it can do absolutely nothing for affecting my identity, my sense of self, being a myth that empowers me to go out and to love people and to do the things that I was doing before, you know, and, and become the kind of person that I've become to have the kind of things that I have. And so, you know, whatever you believe, if you believe that you come, you know, you were reincarnated many times over as a uh, witch, pagan, and you're following paganism, and the, the myths of paganism, the stories of paganism, are empowering you to become the kind of person that you want to become, and you're following your bliss, you should be good for you, man. I mean, we applaud you. See, what we shouldn't be doing is fighting over whose story's right, my story's right, your story's wrong. You know, and, and maybe, maybe you're a pagan out there. You're following some kind of pagan thing. Or maybe the Course in Miracles is really speaking to you right now. And you're doubting because you're like, well, did this really happen? Is this really true information? Just stop that. Stop trying to correspond truth with concrete reality and allow yourself to embrace a myth that is empowering you to become the person you want to become. That's the main point of what I'm saying. Thank you for spending your time with me. I hope my ramblings today benefited you and helped you in some way. Appreciate all the prayers and stuff for me. Last week I, I confided, <laughs> announced, whatever, that I've been having some pretty serious um, chronic pain issues. It's been much, much, much better this week. So thank you for all the, the prayers and the positive energy and positive vibes. Thank you for all the feedback um, that uh, you, you've been sending me. People have contacted me. Um, I appreciate you so much. I appreciate my Facebook family and I uh, look forward to doing some more of this kind of stuff in the future and uh, announcing some things as we're able to get them together um, that we're going to be doing uh, to try to uh, be more of a service and expand uh, the way in which hopefully we can impact and be a benefit to you and your life. So anyway, and to the world. So God bless you. Um, we are still taking donations. Uh, so if you've been blessed or helped by this and you want to make a donation, I'll put it in the links. Um, you can go to our, uh, website, theawakeningcenter.org and, uh, hit, click on the gift button and give us a donation there, but I'll, I'll put something in the links. Uh, I forget to mention that. Uh, and I forget that we still have to, we still have expenses running, uh, the church and the nonprofit. So right now church is this, um, but that'll be changing in the future. So anyway. God bless you. Namaste. Peace. And uh, may you have a wonderful and blessed day.